This week on InfoSex Inc., we record live at our first happy hour at Nottingham's in Columbia, Maryland. Google Play apps try to infect Android devices. We discuss a WordPress plugin flaw. An Internet of Things teddy bear gets hacked. Drydex is back and using atom bombing. And we have a security panel featuring Splunk expert Mr. David Topper. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSex Sync. Hello and welcome to the 31st episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending March 3rd, 2017. What up, InfoSexing? We're coming live to you from Naughty Naughty Nottingham's. <laughs> What's going on? Here we go. Woo! All right. So uh, we have a lot to cover this week, and uh, I guess you can go ahead and start it off, Nick. All right. First story: 132 Google Play apps tried to infect Android users with Windows malware. Researchers suspect developers didn't intentionally spawn the malicious apps, though. It's a mystery that left researchers scratching their heads. 132 Android apps in the official Google Play market attempted to infect users with Windows malware. And Matt, we have talked about the difference between um, the Apple Store and the Google Play Store before. You know how Apple's a little more security conscious about their applications and things like that, right? Right. It's more the vetting of the applications as they get added into the App Store. Uh, It just seems like uh, Apple puts more scrutiny. Absolutely. The apps, which were spawned by seven different developers, mostly contained carefully concealed HTML-based iframe tags that connected to two heavily obfuscated malicious domains. In one case, an app didn't use iframes, but instead used Microsoft's uh, Visual Basic language to inject an entire obfuscated Windows executable into an HTML. The apps were equipped with two capabilities. One was to load in- internal ads, and the other was to load the main app. The main apps loaded web view components that were configured to allow loaded JavaScript code to access the app's native functionality. That was a lot of work, though, considering that the Windows-based malware was incapable of executing on an Android device. On top of that, the two malicious domains in the iframes, brenz.pl, which is B-R-E-N-Z.pl, and chura, C-H-U-R-A.pl, they were taken over by uh, Polish security authorities in 2013. So what exactly was going on? So Palo Alto Networks researchers, uh, the security firm that discovered the apps and reported them to the Google store so they could be removed, believed that developers didn't intentionally include the malicious domains and executable. Instead, the researchers suspect that the de- developers unknowingly used the same infected programming platform to code the apps. A key reason behind the theory the developers all shared a geographic proximity to Indonesia, and a significant number of them included the word, quote, Indonesia, in their app names. In a blog posted uh, 
published Wednesday, the researchers said that one common way HTML files have been infected with malicious iframes has been through file infecting viruses like Ramnit, that's R-A-M-N-I-T. After infecting a Windows host, these viruses search the hard drive for HTML files and append iframes to each document. If a developer was infected with one of these viruses, their app's HTML files could be infected. However, given that the developers may all be Indonesian, it's also possible they may have downloaded an infected integrated developer environment from the same hosting website or they use the same infected online app generation platform. In either case, the, the researchers believe that the developers are not malicious and are victims in this attack. There are a few other pieces of supporting evidences uh, from their investigation. So all the samples share similarities in their coding structure, uh, suggesting that they may be generated from the same platform. Hey Nick, so, so I have a question for you. Um, in regards to code reuse, right? So right. is this kind of uh, multiple developers using an underlying code platform, kind of everybody using the same thing? Uh, absolutely, and they're getting infected by by themselves and possibly spreading the, uh, the malware too. Um, both malicious domains use uh, Resolve to, uh, to save polls. If developers were the attackers behind all these, they could have replaced them with working domains to cause real damage. One infected sample attempts to download Windows executable files. It suggests that the attacker does not know about the target platform. It's not the case for the app developers. Currently, infected apps will not cause damage to Android users. However, this does represent a novel way for platforms to be a carrier for uh, malware. Uh, not to be infected themselves, but spread the malware to other platforms without realizing. And this, Matt, this is similar to uh, Xcode Ghost, the attack um, I think the Palo Alto researchers identified in 2015. Uh, this threat shows how attacking developers can impact end users. The, the dormant uh, domains and the focus on Windows-based malware prevented the apps from posing a threat to the more than 10,000 people who installed the apps, but the researchers said it might have been possible for the apps to uh, be much more malicious. Under one scenario, the iframes could have linked to active domains that use the JavaScript settings to access the app's native functionality. So the last thing they said was through this vector, all resources within the app would be available to the attackers and under their control. They could also operate silently to replace the developer's designated server with their own. And as a result, whatever information that was sent to the developer server now falls in the hands of the attacker. Advanced attackers can also directly modify the app's internal logic, adding rooting utility, declaring additional permissions, or dropping malicious, malicious APK files to escalate their capabilities. So get in, escalate privileges, own, root, chamad, out. Nice. That's it for the first story there. All right, so definitely some very interesting stuff there. Um, so more so, I guess the moral of the story is if you have multiple um, applications that are using the same code base with code reuse or something like that, that may uh, lead to increased development um, with having things to market, but at the same time, you gotta make sure that that groundwork and that foundation is secure. Absolutely. All right, so the next story we're gonna cover is uh, researchers find severe flaw in WordPress plugins with one million installs. So if you use the next gen gallery, now would be a good time to update. 
Uh, more than one million websites running the WordPress content management system may be vulnerable to hacks that allow visitors to snatch password data and secret keys out of databases, at least under certain conditions. So the vulnerability stems from a severe SQL injection bug in the next-gen gallery, which is a WordPress plugin with more than one million installs. Until the flaw was recently fixed, next-gen gallery allowed input from untrusted visitors to be included in the WordPress prepared SQL queries. Under certain conditions, attackers can exploit the weaknesses to pipe powerful commands into a web server's backend database. So there is a, a researcher with web security firm Security. He said this is quite a critical issue. If you're using a vulnerable version of the plugin, update it as soon as possible. So this is going to be kind of boring because we're going to go over um, you know, how to exploit the vulnerability. Um, it'll be posted on our show notes. But to exploit the vulnerability, attackers have to create a feature found in the PHP programming language. Um, and it's a certain string that's within that language. Untrusted visitors could achieve this against sites using the next-gen basic tag cloud gallery feature by making slight modifications to the gallery URL. So with this knowledge, an unauthenticated attacker could add extra sprintf printf directives to the SQL query and then change the behavior to add attacker-controlled code to the executed query. And this is all done from the URL. For, for the attack to work, a website would have to be set up to allow users to submit posts to be reviewed. And an attacker would create an account on the site and submit a post that contains malformed next-gen gallery shortcodes. So security has assigned a severity rating 9 out of a possible 10 points to the vulnerability, which was fixed in version 2.1.79 of the plugin. The update changelog makes no reference to the vulnerability, so it's not clear how widely known the threat is. As Security notes, website administrators who rely on next-gen gallery should, fix the ins should install the fix immediately. So it's one of those things where if you have the opportunity to set up automatic updates or to have some type of system in place where you're vetting the updates through some type of compliance database, that is definitely something that needs to be looked at and implemented. Um, to ensure this so, vulnerability is taken care of. So, Matt, Security gave it a rating of uh, 9 out of 10 points. What, the, what is your Caesar rating on that? So, we have, uh, let's explain Caesar first. Okay. So, it's the uh, Consumer Electronics Security Assertion Rating. So, do you want to go at Trademark, uh, registered trademark. No, we're kidding. But um, so this is kind of this is going to get into the next story we have is there's a Internet of Things teddy bear that was out there and it basically collected data, um, audio recordings, things of that nature, and then put it on a website completely um, unencrypted. Somebody could go up and hear what you know you and your kids are saying and all that. Really creepy. But um, what Vic says to his kids at night, right, Vic? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so the problem is when you go out and buy these, um, if it's a, a bear, for instance, or if you have an um, Internet-connected um, garage door opener, there is no assertion rating as to what the consumer electronic security level of that device is, right? right. There's no... And regular users don't know anything about computer security, uh, much less cyber security, much less Internet of Things other than... Maybe they heard about the Nest thermostat or something like that. Right. So we kind of came up with this thing jokingly, but um, it's like an ESRB. You know the video games, how they have like everybody, mature, like all that type of stuff? It would be that type of rating, but it would be a consumer electronic security assertion rating, Caesar. 
right? So that when we refer to Caesar, that's the joke. It's like an inside joke that we have. But um, so, what would I give it as a Caesar rating? Um, I would probably well, I would probably stick with a nine out of ten. I mean, oh, wow. because we're going to be able to fix it, right? So, right. All right, let's get into. Uh, do you want to get into this teddy bear? Yeah, so the headline was uh, creepy Internet of Things teddy bear leaks uh, greater than 2 million parents and kids' voice messages. Publicly accessible database wasn't even protected by a password. A maker of Internet-connected stuffed animal toys has exposed more than 2 million voice recordings of children and parents, as well as email addresses and password data for more than 800,000 accounts. The account data was left in a publicly available database that was not protected by a password, or placed behind a firewall. Um, this was uh, done by Troy Hunt. He's the maintainer of a website called Have I Been Pwned. Um, he said searches using the Shodan computer search engine and other evidence indicated that since December 25th and January 8th, the customer data was accessed multiple times by multiple parties, including criminals who ultimately held the data for ransom, which is kind of weird. The recordings were available on Amazon hosted service that required no authorization to access. The data was exposed by Spiral Toys, maker of the Cloud Pets line of stuffed animals. The toys record and play voice messages that can be sent over the internet by parents and children. The MongoDB database of 821,296 account records was stored by a Romanian company called M Remedy. I'm sorry, M Ready which Spiral Toys appears to have contracted with. Hunt said that on at least four occasions, people attempted to notify the toy maker of the breach. In any event, <laughs> evidence left behind by the ransom demanders made it almost certain company officials knew of the intrusions. And this is what he said about the whole thing. He said, it's impossible to believe that CloudPets or MReady did not know that firstly, the databases had been left publicly exposed, and secondly, that malicious parties had accessed them. Obviously, they've changed the security profile of the system, and you simply could not have overlooked the fact that a ransom had been left. So both the exposed database and intrusion by those demanding the ransom must have been identified, yet the story never made the headlines. The breach is the latest to uh, stoke concerns about the privacy and security of internet-connected toys. In November 2015, tech news site Motherboard disclosed the hack of a toy maker, VTech, in a breach that exposed the names, emails, addresses, passwords, and home addresses of almost 5 million adults, as well as the first names, genders, and birthdays of more than 200,000 kids. A month later, a researcher found that an internet-connected Barbie doll made by Mattel contained vulnerabilities that might allow hackers to intercept real-time conversations. In addition to storing the customer databases in a publicly accessible location, Spiral Toys also used an Amazon-hosted service with no authorization required to store the recordings. Customer profile pictures, children's names, and their relationships to parents, relatives, and friends. All that was required for anyone to acquire the data was to know the file location, which Hunt said wasn't hard to figure out. In Monday's post, Hunt acknowledged the help of motherboard reporter Lorenzo uh, Franceschi, who published the report. Oddly enough, for a product with such lack security, the service used the ultra-secure bcrypt hashing function to protect passwords. Unfortunately, CloudPets had one of the most permissive password policies ever, 
it allowed a passcode of the single character A or the short keyboard sequence QWE. So anything you want, it would take. What this meant is that when I when he passed the bcrypt hashes into his uh, password cracking app, uh, Hashcat, and checked them against some of the world's most common passwords, like uh, QWERTY, uh, password, one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera, along with the passwords uh, QWE and Cloudlets, he cracked a large number in a very short time. The lesson that emerged long ago is that the security of so-called Internet of Things products is so poor that it often outweighs any benefit afforded by an internet-connected appliance. As the Cloud Pets debacle underscores, the creep factor involved in internet-connected toys makes the proposition even worse. So, so Nick, uh, don't you own one of these adult version of one of these toys? <laughs> that's the one you sent me, right? <laughs> so that's crazy. So the bcrypt hashes that were used, you know, even though it was it's secure in nature if it's used properly, it's improper use caused, you know, basically null and void. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else to say about that, Nick? Uh, it just needs a Caesar rating. How about that? How what do you think? That? What do you think? What do I think? Yeah. What, what would you give it as a rating? Oh, I'll, I'll give it a 10. Okay. 10 out of 10. Yeah. All right. So on to the next one. So this one is going to be very exciting for all of you, I know. We're going to be talking about Drydex, which is a banking Trojan, right? Drydex is back, baby. Nick's excited. So I know like some of this stuff, we go into kind of in-depth with how, um, how everything works on the back end. But we try to throw, sprinkle a lot of stories in there. So if you're very technical, you'll like this one. If not, you may get a kick out of it. So. A new version of uh, the Drydex baking Trojan uses atom bombing to infect systems. It's the first malware to use a newly disclosed code injection method to break into Windows systems. So security researchers at IBM have discovered a new version of the Drydex banking Trojan that takes advantage of a recently disclosed code injection technique called atom bombing to infect systems. The modified version of the malware is already being used in online banking attacks across Europe and poses a fresh threat to organizations because it's harder to detect than previous versions. The new code injection method shuffles things up on detection mechanisms. So this is from an executive security advisor at IBM Security. It means that unless adapted protection layers are added to endpoints, it's going to be much harder to detect what Drydex does once its deployment flow starts rolling. Atom bombing is a technique that's security vendor NSILO demonstrated last October for injecting malicious code into the Atom tables that almost all versions of Windows use to store certain application data. It is a variation of typical code injection attacks that take advantage of input validation errors to insert and ex execute malicious code in a legitimate process or app. Attackers have long used such code injecting ta tactics to try and by bypass security controls and carry out malicious activity without being detected. What InSilo demonstrated was a method to sneak malicious code into Windows Atom tables without being detected by the usual security mechanisms, and then to get the applications to retrieve and execute the code. So the new version of Drydex, which this is Drydex version 4, by the way, is the first malware that uses the atom, banking, the atom bombing process to try and infect systems. So when it copies its payload and some other related data into the memory space of targeted processes, 
Then it departs from the rest of Ensilo's approach. The newer version of Drydex uses a different method to ensure it gets executed. So from previous experience with Drydex, its authors favored writing their own code using their own ideas, IBM says. In this case, since a lot of details about the atom banking technique is already out there, the authors of Drydex probably felt it was safer to put a twist on it, unlike the Indonesian coders we heard of earlier. So also, many times, developers who know the code most intimately choose the features that work best with or that will suit future development plans. The code injection feature is one of several tweaks, including new encryption and persistence mechanisms that the authors of Drydex have made available to the latest version of malware. But it is the most important one because it allows Drydex a way to propagate into an infected system in a minimally observable manner and alert on the new malware noted. So Microsoft weighed in on this. So in a statement, a Microsoft spokeswoman said, for malware like Drydex to be able to use code injection techniques, the user's system needs to have already been compromised. To help avoid malware infection, we encourage our customers to practice good computing habits online, including exercising caution when clicking on links to web pages, opening unknown files, or accepting file transfers. That is the most open-ended statement. But it would be a step in the right directions if users actually did that. So Tal Lieberman, a security researcher at Ensilo, says, it's no surprise at all that the malware authors are attempting to use the atom bombing method. I'm actually surprised that it took so long for something like this to surface. Typically, when a zero-day vulnerability is disclosed, attackers try to use them as soon as possible before software vendors roll out packages or patches. This pattern holds true for the new injection techniques such as atom bombing. In fact, others have likely used the technique already, and the latest version of Drydex is only the first to be detected using it, he says. Atom bombing takes advantage of Microsoft Windows built-in atom tables and allows specific API calls to inject code in the read-write memory space of a targeted process. This is a legitimate part of the operating system performing as designed and cannot be patched against, Lieberman says. However, average security products can block most known code injection techniques. When new techniques like atom bombing are used, the products need to be updated to neutralize that specific technique. So, Nick, I have a question for you. Um, Nick went to RSA this year, so he had a lot of fun out there. Um, he has videos of approaching vendors and, you know, having discussions with them and stuff like that. What happened to your video? Did you get hit by some dry decks? What's going on? You need some wind. He needs some Windex. What happened? You're like, uh, you're fuzzy. Oh. But you can still hear me, right? Yeah. All right, cool. So in your journey uh, at RSA, were there any products that um, could potentially protect against this type of threat? Or um, what was the general consensus with the vendors that you saw there? Well, um, you know, the vendors are always trying to keep up with the latest and greatest. Um, a lot of endpoint products out there. Um, you know, one of the vendors I talked to was uh, Absolute, and they have a they have a self-healing thing where um, if you delete stuff off your endpoint system, it puts it right back on based on the whitelist or based on your gold image. And uh, for something like it's that was hard. that was called application healing, right? Yeah, that was called application healing. So it's like it's, it's like really, Neosporin for your computer. <laughs> it's really hard to uh, to find something like this if. if don't know what you're looking for so this is when you always need um, security guys on your team looking at, at data logs verification
authentication and verifying the logs because that's the only way you're going to find stuff like this. And um, you know, there's a good tool out there for looking at machine data and logging and a whole bunch of data. And I believe it's uh, goes by the name of Splunk, uh, where you can uh, it can assist you with doing mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, I just wish that we had a Splunk expert who could walk us through how we can be looking at the data and um, verifying things and checking things out, Matt. Cool. So uh, what we probably need to do right now, we're going to get ready for our uh, second half. It's already been like 30 minutes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, uh, get everybody on the same page, and we're going to start our security panel um, kind of talking about uh, different ways to prevent this within the enterprise, how to use um, SIEM solutions um, to correlate event data and uh, prevent this type of stuff from happening. So let's take a break, and we'll be back. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And we're back. We're back. All right, let me make you a full-size screen here. No. Boom. All right, cool. That just happened. All right. <laughs> so, um... We have Mr. Topper here. Hey, guys. All Dave right. Topper here. Absolutely. So um, the man, the myth, the legend, right? So, so Dave Topper, he is a Splunk certified power user, administrator, architect, consultant one and two. He also has a CISSP Network Plus and Security Plus certifications. Welcome, Dave Topper. Well, thank you, guys. Happy to be here. All right, so this is kind of a new style for us. We're going to do a little bit of a security panel, um, and what we're going to talk about are uh, some of the adaptive response capabilities of Splunk, since we have somebody that knows a thing or two about a thing or two when it comes to Splunk. So <clears throat> what we've heard through and through with these stories um, are kind and we covered a couple episodes ago, Nick, um, the McAfee and Gartner Quadrant reports. Where uh, it was talking about inefficiencies of uh, security operation centers. And um, one of the main problems was that of not having um, proper uh, security event and incident management solutions deployed within the, uh, within the enterprise. So um, we, we have some information about Splunk Up with the adaptive response to just kind of spark the conversation. But... Uh, I mean, Dave, what do you think about this as far as uh, having a whole bunch of data in these different, I see them as silos across the network and not have them correlated. Um, you know, it, that's typically at the detriment of uh, the security operations center in the enterprise, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, you've got all this data in different disparate locations and, um, you know, good products. You might have a vulnerability scanner that you can go and look at your scan histories, how your vulnerabilities are, 
Uh, maybe you're maybe you're running some asset repository information <clears throat> in another application, um, but there are, you have to log into these different interfaces, and it's not able to be correlated that way. And with Splunk, it's a universal machine data platform. Any kind of data you can ingest into Splunk and pull it in, have a single pane of glass. You can search through it in real time for different correlations, run your analytics against it. Um, it uses something called search processing language, which is SPL, which is really user friendly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna say it's like running a Google search, but it's pretty close. You know, it's pretty quick to pick up. Uh, a lot of similarities with SQL, SQL, for those of you that have done databases. Um, so it's very user friendly, very easy to pick up. You can feed all of your data sources into it and gain some real value out of things like Matt said with correlations. So my question is, the big thing, a lot of people don't want to go to like a Splunk because of the associated cost. So um, we have another solution that's out there, the Elasticsearch Logstash and Kibana, like an Elk stack that you can deploy out there. It's free, uh, I believe it's a, uh, an Apache, Apache product, but it's free and open source. So I guess the difference between that and Splunk is you pay for Splunk, but with Elk, you're going to have to build everything yourself. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And I mean, I, I've heard some good things with Elk Stack and Kibana and some of the open source solutions. But, you know, with Splunk, a lot of that knowledge that you would spend, you know, countless man hours trying to develop on your own is kind of baked in with some of these premium apps like uh, Enterprise Security or their Adaptive Response. Um, you know, Splunk has a whole team of cybersecurity engineers that have thought through all those security use cases and kind of put best of breed analytics in place. Um, so, awesome, uh, so right out the box, um, it's already doing stuff other, other uh, uh, competitors can't do. Yeah. Like. yeah. So my question is, like, let's say I have a security onion stack, which... Uh, Doug Burks came out with a great um, open source IDS that you can deploy. Um, I have one deployed um, at the house and just kind of water the water the you know water the plants per se, keep it up and running. But if I wanted to like link in um, Splunk into this, I would just have to output that data feed from that IDS to a Splunk. Now, is there what's the magic in Splunk that can take that data and then put it to where it's that pane of glass where I can search it? It, does all that happen with Splunk? Is it able to do everything and kind of correlate the data for you and then allow you to search across that data? Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the biggest thing with Splunk, uh, tying into these premium apps, is you just want to make sure your data feeds. And, and if you're using actual vendor products, you know, you're not using something open source, a lot of times the logs that they're putting out, they're already common information model. You just pull them right into Splunk. It already has a source type built in that's going to extract it in key value pairs. So you have source IP, you have source port, you have destination IP, you have destination port. All those kinds of pieces of information that you'd want to run an analytic against to see, okay, am I getting any inbound threat actors from known black, you know, malicious actor sites? Like uh, any blacklisted sites that are out there. So it can pull all that data in um, across all those maintained lists and then see if you're getting hit by anybody on those those particular blacklists. Yeah, you can have your threat intelligence feed and then correlating that against your IDS solution to see, you know, if you've got any bad actors trying to hit you. So, there's a so there's Splunk and then there's Splunk Enterprise Security, ES. 
which optimizes threat detection and remediation using workflow-based context. But they have an adaptive response initiative with partner integrations. So the adaptive response uses Splunk software as the security nerve center to bridge intelligence from multiple security domains. Um, they have like a, a cloud access security broker, um, endpoint detection with carbon black, um, identity and access management um, with OCA, and then they have network admission and access control with Cisco. Can you remark to any of that stuff? I mean, why, why do you think Splunk feels so secure in the industry now to where they can open it up to different partners? Is it because they have a product that can bridge and be the cohesive glue between all these different um, threat intelligence platforms and kind of be the nerve center? Um, what, have, what have you seen on the front lines? Is this something that, that Splunk really has it figured out to where they can open it up to different partners and allow them to use the same solution? Yeah, I, I think that's putting it very well. I, I mean, Splunk is a great product. You know, disclaimer, I don't work for them. I've just been working with Splunk for the last four or five years. Um, great product, and a lot of times it comes into an environment and it doesn't necessarily replace a tool. It comes in and it works better with the existing tools that you have and you feed data into it and it becomes your single sole trusted source of all of your aggregation data from your network, from your applications, from your endpoints and so forth. You feed all the log data into it and then you can run correlation searches against everything. Basically connect the dots across things you maybe hadn't thought of before. Right. So Nick, what questions do you have on your end for um, kind of things you've seen out at RSA um, recently? Uh, different, different tools out there in the industry. Um, what are your thoughts on this? So Dave, my question is um, integrating with um, some of the big people like ArcSight and Splunk, what kind of plugins are there um, where I can uh, send logs to Splunk, um, look at, for instance, um, if I have um, malicious DNS transfers, can I set up logging for that to make it look easier in Splunk uh, versus ArcSight, uh, things like that? What do you say about that? So you guys have probably heard this before. I'm going to say there's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a site, there's a site called Splunkbase, and, and any major vendor has invested hours, countless man hours, into putting their data into a Splunk app. So you can download the app, and you don't have to basically ingest their data feed from scratch. All the key value pairs are automatically set up to extract properly from the get-go. You install their app, you bring the data feed into Splunk, you click the button, and now, now you've got your data. You've got all your key value pairs. Now you can, and, and then a great thing about the apps, too, is they don't just contain the extractions to make the data legible, per se. They also contain built-in visualizations, so you can instantly oh see God. your data how many alerts you have, you know, what the source IPs are, what your top 10, you know, great, great graphs, historical views, it's all baked in from the app. So my question, Dave, is if we have um, Splunk out there, does it have to be installed as an agent on the endpoint host, or is this something that can be uh, kind of leveraged at the syslog server level or at a collector level? Like, how is it typically deployed? What is the most efficient yeah. deployment right. model? How are the different ways you yeah, you know, I, I've seen that in the past. That, that's a great question. Um, you know, some of the customers, they don't want to have 
an agent on every host. They like the baseline the way it is. They don't want to mess with the baseline. Um, so you can actually send data into Splunk over syslog, you know, just send it over port 514. You, it can collect data over the network. Um, there is something called a Splunk universal forwarder. If you do want to go the agent route, uh, the, the universal forwarder is basically a lightweight version of Splunk, very low overhead from a CPU and memory perspective. Uh, you just put it on the box. You configure what logs you're interested in as far as your inputs, and then you tell it where your cluster is to send the Splunk to send the data into Splunk to make it searchable. Um, there's also something called a heavy forwarder, which is a more robust instance. If you want to do some pre-processing of the data, um, basically take the load off of your cluster in cases where you're indexing, say, you know, a terabyte or more of data per day. So there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of different options to how to get the data in. So is this out of the box like that, or do you have to configure it? Do I need a Splunk architect to come in and do that? Can I learn this on my own? How would one go about doing that? So for a new installation of Splunk, you know, def definitely for an enterprise deployment scale, you're going to want an architect. Um, but, you know, this is totally an application you can download for free, put it on your laptop, play around with it. You don't have to do an enterprise deployment where you have, you know, an, a whole cluster of indexers. You can do a single instance. Um, you know, a lot of the states out there have taken an open data policy. Uh, you can go to New York and look at the restaurant websites and how many, you know, violations have occurred. You can pull down their entire database. You know, say you're taking a trip to New York City and you want to know where not to eat at. Right. <laughs> you, you can uh, pull down their database of restaurant violations, throw it into Splunk, and you can create a whole bunch of dashboards around, okay, well, this restaurant had, you know, rodent infestation, or this restaurant had, you know, fecal matter present, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So deployment-wise, I mean, uh, if a company's interested in Splunk, I would definitely set up a test bench, you know, throw it on a laptop, maybe put a couple applications worth of data in it, and just take it for a test drive. Wow, that's really cool. Now, one thing I do want to touch on is where we have all this data stored, right? How critical is it for us to have security controls present on those systems? So, like, if we have a any of the forwarders, any of the preprocessors that are out there, we have to make sure that the security control implementations on that are really beefed up because a uh, malicious actor or anybody could get on there and kind of set up a split feed so they're seeing some of that feed or they could mess with the data in some way, shape, or form. So is there anything out of the box that Splunk has that can, um, that can beef up security for you almost on the fly, or is that something you typically have to bake in at the operating system level? So one of the best practices for Splunk is to do the installation as a non-privileged user. You don't want to have Splunk running as root because then, of course, if they're able to pwn Splunk, well, they've got root privileges. Right. Um, so that, that's one of the best practices is to set up a non-privileged user and have Splunk run as that. Um, you can set up a PKI architecture so everything's running over SSL. Uh, that, that, and Splunk has a built-in, you know, if you want to use their built-in certificate or if you want to use your own certificates uh, to make it more secure, you can definitely go that route. Um, as far as, you know, a lot of the stories you guys were talking about earlier, you know, it's, it's not so much a question of if you're going to get compromised as more, as more of when from the sound of it, especially when you're doing things like, you know, making your database publicly accessible. Yeah, that, that was definitely a... Uh a high Caesar rating there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> One of those things that we don't want to see. So um, 
So cool. Nick, do you have any further questions? Yeah, actually, Dave, I, I don't know if you can talk about it, but what do you do um, daily at your client? What kind of splunk stuff do you do daily at your client or that they ask for? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that, Nick. So I, uh, I've been working with Splunk again for four or five years, um, and my most common, I work in the security industry, so a lot of my use cases are, you know, cybersecurity, obviously. And we use Splunk really for continuous monitoring, which is, uh, you know, step six of the risk management framework. Uh, you know, you basically have your system and you figure out you're going to operate at it, but you don't just want to click the button and, you know, I believe button and just let it run. You want to continue to monitor things, your logs, your authentication failures, your intrusion detection system, your network. You want to monitor everything. So in the off chance you are compromised, you know, you don't find about it. You don't find out about it a year later or when, you know, the CIA is calling to let you know, yeah, we think you guys are compromised. You know, you, you can catch it near real time and put your mitigations in place. Um, so we're watching a lot of things, mainly continuous monitoring, things like what are our assets, what are the vulnerabilities on our assets, who are the privileged users, what software one, runs on our assets, what's going on on our network, all those kinds of security related. So there's an interesting article that Gartner had put out, and um, this is, let's see, uh, yeah, this is this is one I didn't send. But this is the magic quadrant for security information and event management. So kind of what we were talking about before, um, you know, they compared uh, Tenable Security Center, Continuous View, Tripwire Log Center, um, Huntsman Security, Fair Warning. And with all these different SIEM solutions that are out there, IBM came first, right? But uh, a close second was, was Splunk. But with the SIEM alternatives, they said the complexity and cost of SIEM, as well as emerging security analytic technologies, have driven interest in alternative approaches to collecting and analyzing event data to identify advanced attacks. So they have the combination of Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana, OpenSock, Apache Metron, and other tools leveraged with or natively using big data platforms like Hadoop offer data collection, management, and analytic capabilities but organizations with sufficient resources to deploy and manage these and develop and maintain analytics to address security use cases may be able to get a solution that addresses a sufficient number of the requirements for a lower cost compared with commercial technologies. That basically says to me, if you have the people to do it and the developer you know, talent to do it, then go ahead and try to grow your own. But it's kind of discouraged against because of the fact that you're gonna spend so much money with the development cost and now you have to maintain that onwards. Whereas if you have a managed, what is it, a um, managed system security provider or security Service solutions, provider. yeah. So a managed um, security service provider, they have a broader use case requirement. However, the MDR services, which is uh, managed detection and response services, can claim effective advanced threat detection capabilities and may compete for SIEM budget in organizations with resources to support those use cases. So what I take from that is if you grow your own, you're now going to have a competing budget internally with an internal development, development effort versus something that you can have a managed uh, security service provider handle that for you, and it's kind of more cleanly cut um, from a budget perspective. 
because you have more um, leeway in there for expanding the capability and maintaining the capability. So definitely very cool stuff. And they also cited some information from the 2016 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. Um, we'll post this all up on the website so uh, everybody can take a look at it. But definitely really cool how they go into different SIEM alternatives and how that can um, affect the CIO and CISO's uh, viewpoint and, and, and what they're doing. So cool insight. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just... Uh you know, as, as far as Splunk's concerned, um, you know, it, it can be a bit expensive. The more you buy, um, like let's say you're going to have a 50 gig license, you're going to pay more than, you're going to pay more per gigabyte than say you bought a terabyte license. So I, I don't know the exact pricing model, but you know, it's per, per how much data you're ingesting. And obviously there's discounts as you scale upwards. Um, but to Splunk's um, point, they do have a fantastic user community. You know, if, you, if you're using Splunk and you've run into a problem, chances are someone else has run into that same problem. You can go out to Splunk Answers. And, it, I mean, and even if it's a new problem, you just post the question, and someone will be coming along, they'll find it a couple minutes later, hopefully, kick you back an idea. It's, it's a great collaboration area. So some of these other open source tools are, are powerful, uh, but they just don't quite have the community um, that Splunk has built up over the years. I'm a subscriber or my company's a subscriber to your services or we have Splunk equipment um, with us. Uh, is there a Splunk cloud that hosts um, a lot of services that, that can be provided or is provided when you're a subscriber? Yeah, so, so they do offer Splunk in the cloud. And, and that, that's basically, it takes, um, you know, as far as administrating the uh, architecture of Splunk, your indexers, your forwarders, your search head, all that's, you know, obfuscated. You just go to a URL, your data's in there, you can search through it, you can build out your analytics. You don't have to take care of any of the hardware aspect of it. And how often are updates made um, for whatever system you have? So let's say um, an, an attacker attacked your subscriber in Texas and I'm a subscriber in Huntsville, Alabama. Does that data go into the cloud and let all your subscribers know that, hey, this is bad? your system or it happens automatically um, you can you can configure Splunk to take automated actions for a wide variety of things uh, like like if you have an IP that starts hitting you from a known bad site or even from a not not a known bad site you just get some you know 10,000 connect uh, connection attempts or something like that yeah. from a yeah, in, in a short amount of time and you want to put in an automated rule in your firewall to go in and and block that IP Splunk can take those kinds of actions. So Splunk, Splunk facilitates that almost action of putting in that firewall rule to block that, um, but that's all done from the Splunk engine, right? So you'd have to, that's a predefined thing that you'd have to put in there. Is there anything automatic that you can leverage, um, kind of pre-grown rule sets that you can use? And, the, and that's where like their premium app, like Enterprise Security, has a lot of built-in alerts. Right, I'm sure that costs some money, right? <laughs> It, it, they do have a couple premium apps. I'd say the lion's share of apps are all free. Uh, like if you have Cisco Networks, you want to download the Cisco Network app, that's free. You know, there's, there's a zillion that are free. Premium ones are, are enterprise security. Um, they've got information, uh, IT intelligence services. So basically, if you want to 
use Splunk to monitor your service health, your service health in your organization, like your you know database stack or something. Keep an eye on when your services. That's another premium app. Um, so it's kind of like it's kind of like a Nagios or something like that, right? Taking, exactly. Taking it to the next level. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Does any one of our guests have any questions for Dave? Do you do you have a, anybody have any questions? <laughs> all right. I don't think we have any questions. I think I think we all, we asked all the hard questions, Nick. Okay. All right. We do have a question. Yeah. Just come up to this mic here. Let me light you up. How are you guys doing? Hey, good, thanks. All right, my name's Edward. What's your name, sir? My name's Edward, and I have a question about uh, using Splunk with uh, a uh, heuristics or an IDS that's not signature-based. Well, how does it work in that environment? Would it be able to capture the information that's being provided and take action in that, in that type of environment? So there's a, um, a free app that called Machine Learning Toolkit that has a lot of built-in... Um, heuristic, behavior type based algorithms. Uh, you can basically turn it loose, let it learn your network, let it learn your your reporting base, and then it'll be able to say, you know, it, it can do things that, that we wouldn't be able to do, like say you have a thousand hosts, and host A never talks to host D, but you don't know that because it's just a whole bunch of interconnections that you see. You know, your machine learning toolkit using its behavior, it, it can say, well, that's never happened before, you know, let, let me let I'll flag an alert on that so it can help you establish what's normal on your network exactly so yeah there you go <laughs> that's really cool I'm sorry Nick you sound a little psychedelic <laughs> you got a bit of reverberation going on yeah, you got some reverb. The reverb's kicking back up. <laughs> All right, so that's it for our panel. Um, any, do you guys have any more questions? All right, so we're good to go. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, so, hey. all right, you ready to close out the show, Nick? Sure. We got a lot coming out of anything. Anybody got anything coming up? No, we have nothing coming up. Um, maybe another one of these in the next couple of months. Uh, it'd be cool to get everybody out again. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for coming out. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it. And thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V I K T E C H dot net.